Hello, so good to see you all be here with you today and continue our look at Lavish Love. And um, you'll notice that I got my outline title today, What's Love Got to Do With It? from that esteemed theologian, Tina Turner. <laughs> That's what we're going to talk about today. What's love got to do with it when it comes to being in the family of God? And I just need to tell you something. The answer to that first blank under the title is the last word in the keyword. So if you put that first keyword up in there, you're just going to be lost the whole time. So just wait for it, wait for it. So thinking so much about love while I was working on this got me to thinking about my two wonderful children's weddings. And so I thought I'd show you a little bit about them. This is my son, Tyler. And you can't tell who the bride is because my daughter's sort of hugging and stealing him. <laughs> That's my daughter, Cassie. And uh, Tyler married Katie. And I did what you're supposed to do. They say, wear beige and be quiet. So I wore black and was even quieter. <laughs> it's what's required. It was wonderful. I have to tell you that um, it was a beautiful day. My son did wear a suit for his wedding, even though the second it was over, that coat was gone, and we never saw it again. <laughs> so in all the pictures, that's what it looks like. Anyway, we are so thankful for Katie and Tyler. Then my daughter Cassie's wedding was right where I'm standing right now, almost 10 years ago. She married wonderful Brooks Moore. We're so excited. Again, she's trying to steal Tyler. <laughs> I really got caught up with this whole idea of wonderful love, how great it is. So I had all these ideas for Cassie's wedding. One of them was I had this great idea of opening the wedding with having little children up here singing what the world needs now is love, sweet love. Then I thought some more about it, and I thought, they need to come down the aisle waving streamers <laughs> before they get up here. And I told my wonderful daughter, Cassie, and she politely listened to me and then politely said, no. <laughs> so it was the end of my wedding dreams. But we had beautiful weddings anyway. We still have some great memories of both weddings. One of them has to do with our topic today, when I was dancing the customary mother-son dance at Tyler's wedding. So do you remember when you were little and your mom or dad wanted to dance with you and they'd take you over and you'd stand on their feet and so wherever you moved, they would move or maybe you have children and you do that with them right now. I think it's such a neat picture of love and unity, and I did that with Tyler and Cassie a lot. And so I'm doing the mother-son dance, and everyone's eyes are on us, and he leans over and says, you should be standing on my feet now. Bad timing. <laughs> I'm almost start weeping. I kind of melt for a few moments. He has to kind of hold me up. What a great thing. Tyler had danced through life, standing on the sure thing of my love and his father's love. Now he was strong enough to love others in the same way. And I think that's a great spiritual picture for us as well. We come to God because he loves us so much. 
We stand on the support and strength of his love. We stand on that sure thing of his love as we grow up in him. But then he expects us to go out and love each other. We have to say to each other, you can stand on my feet now. We dance through life, Christians do, supported by the love of each other. When we pledge ourselves to Christ, we pledge to make love the mainstring of our life. Because God is love, so we must love one another. We don't have a choice. 1 John 4 8 tells us if we don't love, we don't know God because he is love. So the lavish love of God and the church's response to it by loving each other is taught, if you've noticed, throughout the entire letter of this 1 John letter. He is reminding the church of what they knew to be true. From the moment that Jesus opened his mouth to speak, his message was about a kind of love no one had ever heard of before. Selfless, forgiving, sacrificial, merciful, unconditional. That kind of love wove its way through the words of Christ, through the actions of Christ, everywhere that he went. John listened to these words of love. John experienced and felt this kind of love. It was to be the heart of the gospel that he would pass down to his disciples. Look on your verse sheet at John 13. He said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have Love for one another. And this is the kind of love that led Jesus to the cross. And now this divine kind of love was to be the heartbeat of the new church, the church of Jesus Christ. How in the world could the church of Jesus Christ be healthy if the members didn't love each other? It wouldn't happen. Look what 1 John 3.11 says. For this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So in today's verses, John also paints a picture of what love is not. He uses two brothers from the book of Genesis to do that, Cain and Abel. They are the children of Adam and Eve. So let's go to chapter 3, uh, looking at verse 10 again. We're going to go down through 12. By this it's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message you've heard from the beginning. We should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Okay, in those verses, John's asking a question. Who is your father? Is it the righteous God or is it his adversary, the devil? We like to think there's fathers in between. There's no fathers in between. God or Satan? John teaches us we can know the answers to these questions by our attitudes and the actions that follow them. If we lack love for the church and the people within it, we lack the righteousness of God, therefore we cannot be a child of God. And we're a child of the devil, 
who is opposed to true love. Love can exist in the realm of evil. This was the realm of Cain. He hated his very own brother, Abel. Both of them worked in fields. Abel worked with the livestock. Cain worked with the crops. They both offered fruits to the Lord, the fruit of their efforts. God accepted Abel's offering, rejected Cain's offering. And I've read that story many times, and my first thought always is, that just does not seem fair. Why would he do that? On the surface, that's a thought. But we have to understand, Abel must have been acting in obedience, and Cain was not. We know this because years later, Jude, Jesus' half-brother, shed some light on that subject. Look at Jude 10 on your verse sheet. He said, these people, he's talking about the false teachers here, and he's going to connect them to Cain. These people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain. What do they have to say about Abel? Look at Hebrews 11. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. It seems Abel approached God with faith and obedience. Cain approached God as a duty, and he did it on his own terms. We can see that he had a lack of faith when we read in Genesis how he responds and how God responds to him. God says, why are you so angry, Cain? You know, won't you be accepted by me if you do well, if you come to me in faith, if you obey my commands? But Cain's father was not the Lord. It was the evil one. So even God himself, could not talk Cain out of his sin and out of his anger. So love does not let hatred reign in its heart as Cain allowed. The result was this meeting of the two brothers in a field and Cain taking Abel's life. And I think murder is the ultimate expression of hate. Jesus taught the unbelieving Jews years later that Satan was a murderer from the very beginning so we can see that he is the father of Cain by his actions. Look at John 8 on your verse sheet. Jesus said this to the unbelieving Jews. Now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are of your father the devil, and will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Love doesn't resent the righteousness of others. We read here that Cain was sinful. His deeds were evil. He couldn't stand to watch his brother Abel go to work every day, seeing him do righteous things. He probably stood across the field you know, milking the cows in just great dismay to see the faith and righteousness that Abel had. He couldn't stand to see the way God rewarded his life. Jealousy was a root that grew deep in the heart of Cain. And it reminded me of the false teachers in the early church. 
I think that's what John's also wanting his readers to think about as well. The hate that was accompanying them. They disdained any righteous Christian behavior that didn't go along with the behavior that they decided everyone needed to have. So both these, Cain as well as the false teachers, they had behind their resentment this desire for more, for selfish more. In fact, Jude called it for the sake of gain. And Cain went on and built a city for himself. And the false teachers, all they wanted to do was build the new church for themselves. Love is, though, not focused on selfish gain. So that push against God and those that follow him, it was true in Genesis. It was true in the early church. Is it true today? It's still true today, which is unbelievable. But an evil man will always instinctively hate a good man. And why is that? Because a good man is sort of a walking rebuke to the evil man without him even saying a word to him. 1 John 3, 13 through 15. So John says, don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever doesn't love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So like Cain, we are also in the field serving God. Um, And like Abel, that is what we are doing in the right spirit. We're offering our time. We're offering our talents and our adoration. But when Christians are doing that, the Cains are standing on the edge of the field watching us. And here's the mistake I sometimes make. Hey, Cain, come on over. Pick up a rake. Come and do this with us. It's really fun. You know, do what we do. Enjoy what we enjoy. Let's get into kingdom work. Think like we think. Come and celebrate what God is doing. And there's a problem when we think like that. John says, yes, you should always be aware there's Cain's in the world, but you need to know what they're like. You need to be aware and understand who they are or you will be surprised. And that word means marvel, be perplexed, think it's strange. And I think on my part, I just get angry and I can get impatient with the canes of this world because they're ignoring us or belittling us or mistreating the Abels in this world. They not only refuse to step onto the field, they sort of mock the field. But here's what I've been learning. Why do we expect the Cains in the world to act like the Abels in the world? Why do we expect them to behave like us and to respect what we do, to share our godly opinions, to be who we are? Should we expect the lost to behave like the found? I think John told the story of Cain and Abel so the church would understand the world is also going to hate us. For the same reasons, Cain hated Abel, and that is our righteousness. Why be surprised? Look at the differences. Cain and Abel had two different fathers. So does a believer and a non-believer. Because of Christ, we have life. They abide in death. We love those in the body of Christ. They hate others as Cain did. And in God's eyes, all types of hate is also a manifestation of some kind of murder. 
We inherited eternal life, but they will be separated from God. And the evidence that we're different than the unbeliever is our love. Our love for the things of God. Our love for the people of God. It's also the evidence of our salvation. We can know we passed out of death into life because there is a special kind of love that lives within us and comes out without us outside of us. And just as it was natural in our old state when we didn't know the Lord to sort of hold on to some form of hate, jealousy, bitterness, unforgiveness, thinking I have the right to hang on to this, I deserve this, it's natural once we know Christ, we have a new state of being to say, that's wrong. Help me, Lord. Help me give that up. That's that divine love that lives inside of us. And we know we got to go to God with these things. And we want to go to God with those kind of things in our lives. We know that that divine kind of love needs a divine kind of help. So we're not the same people anymore. And we don't think or behave like the Cain's. Someone lacking love for those who serve God indicates that they are not alive spiritually. They are dead. They have never been reborn into God's kingdom. Jesus said, the world hated me. The world is going to hate you. Because, see, our eyes are fixed on Jesus, not the rest of the world. Jesus also indicated if you're in a field working for him, waving to people on the edge, come on, come and help us, and they just stand there and they don't come help. If they refuse, it's because they already have another job. They may not know it, but they're working against us. And worse than that, they're working against Jesus. Look what he says in Matthew 12. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. So what's our response to people who hate us for our faith? in some form of another, Jesus had to say something about that as well. Look at Matthew 5. He said, you've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. In other words, we are not to hate the kings that hate us. And it's so easy to do sometimes. It's not what Jesus calls us to do. We should be praying that they experience that grace that takes us out of death and into life because we experienced it even though we didn't deserve it. Once upon a time, we were also enemies of God. Praise God for his grace in our lives. Okay, so what love is? We know what love is not. So John's going to shed some light on what love really is. Look at verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but indeed. And truth. Okay, I'm glad to get off the subject of what love isn't. What love is, it's like Jesus. 
It's Christ-like. If you want to know what love is, we just have to look at Jesus. Remember those wristbands, what would Jesus do, and everybody? Really, it's really a great discipline to kind of think about every day. What would Jesus do in this situation? Because love, everything he does, is going to spring out of love. You know, Jesus was revolutionary about love. No one had ever loved like him. Can you imagine being the father of the little girl as you watch Jesus raise her from death and hand her back to him? Can you imagine being the man who was uh, demonized literally by a demon for years of his life and then looking up into the eyes of Jesus who rescued him? Can you imagine being the adulterous woman thrown at his feet in the dust and the dirt that he forgave? and let her go her way. How about the disciples who he patiently loved and taught for three years? How about being the scandalous Samaritan woman who learned what unconditional love is as Jesus met with her at the well? How about the people at the cruel cross who actually heard from the same man's mouth as he was being crucified, Father, forgive them. What kind of love is that? The world has never known such a great love. That's our calling, to love like that in his power and strength. It's a love that should perplex the rest of the world. They should be more surprised by us than we are by them. You know, Shelley mentioned last week that Botham Jean, the man who was shot in his apartment, she mentioned that how his brother said to the woman who shot him, I forgive you. But then he said something else. I love you just like anyone else. And when she got off her chair and ran and hugged him, she was really embracing that Christ-like love that we all need to be showing to the people around us. I think life is an opportunity of learning how to love, and we look to Jesus to learn how to do that. Look at Philippians 2. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So John in this passage is specifically looking at Christ on the cross as an example for us. And so because of Jesus, we can learn love is sacrificial. Instead of taking someone's life, Jesus lets us take his life. It was his plan. It was his plan for our benefit. Christ giving up his life for us summarizes the true nature of Christian love that we're to have for each other. God calls us to the same standard of love as he had for us. His love was all about the giving and not about the taking. And I thought about reading this. If it means giving your very life literally, then so be it. And as I say that, of course, I recognize that's real easy for me to say up here. Sounds truthfully impossible to do. But I do believe if we're ever in that kind of scenario, 
the grace of God can overwhelm us and come upon us. It may be impossible for us, but all things are possible for God. Actually know that this is happening around the world all the time. Many Christians do this. I read about a young woman not too long ago decided to go to a very hostile country so she could share the gospel. She went with some other people. She sold everything she had and told her parents, all my belongings will be in this one duffel bag. If anything ever happens to me, get my duffel bag. Later on, she was murdered with the other missionaries she was with, and the family went to get her duffel bag And on the top of it, when they opened it, was a letter that she'd written them. And on big letters on the top of the envelope, it said, I have no regrets. Giving your life for the sake of the gospel. According to Martin Luther, a religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is worth nothing. We know that we don't often have these kind of episodes where we're giving our life or we're living out of a duffel bag, but there are lesser sacrifices that Jesus expects us to do because love is selfless. It means giving up our agenda for God's agenda. It means giving away money we were saving to get this, but I think God wants me to give it here. It means visiting the sick when we would rather be doing this, bringing a meal, encouraging a friend, Cleaning someone's house. Stopping to be with the sad or the lonely. John says, how can we say God's love abides in us if we close our hearts to the needs that our brothers and sisters in Christ have all around us? Close our heart means like shutting out concern for each other. The true test of love is not just a verbal profession of it, It's the willingness to put shoe leather on what we claim to be true in our life. When I had my daughter Cassie, I was um, living on the east side of Fort Worth on this old Victorian house that we were working on. And my family was in Chicago. And Ted's family was split up all over, not near Fort Worth. And so I didn't ever really have anybody much to help me with this newborn baby. And so it was really a shocker one day to wake up, and Ted had to be at something. And I realized I was really sick, and I'm looking at this two-month-old baby who's crying and needy, and I'm like, I can hardly get out of bed. What am I supposed to do? And my wonderful friend uh, named Julie came over without me even knowing she was going to do that and knocked at the door and took that baby out of my hands and went upstairs and I went in my bedroom and she stayed the entire day, giving up her day, knowing there was a need that she had. Instead of shutting her heart to that, she opened it and thought, what, what can I do? I think it's a great illustration of what selflessness looks like. Selflessness... Love means we are willing to surrender the things we value in our life to enrich someone else's life. Hebrews 13 tells us this. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So being in the family of God means we're going to love each other as Christ loves us. But here's some of the best news ever. 
When we live that way and we're holding hands with God, he just throws gifts on us. He blesses and rewards us when we are loving as he's called us to love. Let's look at verse 19 through 21. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before God for whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So do you ever doubt your salvation? Does your heart ever try to sort of convince you, maybe you really don't know the Lord, maybe you're really not in Christ. Your heart might even have been condemning you doing this little talk today because it condemned me. As I read and thought, I, I don't love everyone enough or I don't love everyone or I'm not loving like I should love. Is my father the devil? I mean, that's what you start thinking when you let your heart condemn you. So I want to calm our hearts to say this. The hate in these verses is about the kind of hate that wants to be hateful. It's the kind of hate that lets hate reign in their heart, that resents good, plots evil. It's our illustration of Cain. This is about murdering others with our hatred, shaking a fist at God while we do it. That's not who we are. Instead, we have this love for each other, and we desire to improve it. So we can ensure our hearts, assure our hearts that we belong to God. How awesome is that? Loving others brings assurance to our hearts of our salvation. I read a great, great quote on it. If we've been engaged in the kind of love which John encouraged, our guilt-ridden heart can be persuaded by realizing that God is well aware of our commitment to the truth. God's the one that holds fast who we really are. It made me think about Peter. Wow, remember Jesus is arrested in the garden. Peter runs to a fire so he can see where he's going. And three times they say, you were with him. You're one of his. And Peter denies knowing Jesus three times. His love was a very imperfect love. Later on, Jesus resurrects. They're sitting by a fire again. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? Yes. Peter, do you love me? Yes. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. That's true for us. We have an imperfect love, but we still love God. He knows our hearts. We can say back, you know all things. You know my heart. You know I love you. And I want to love others as you've called me to. We trust that God knows those things, including what dwells in our hearts, our love for him and his own, even when our love is not perfect. Because of that, here's something else we get because we love each other. Love leads to confidence before God. Once our hearts have been silenced, once our self-condemnation is erased, we can look at the love of God and be confident in it, and we can approach him, and we can know that we have God's ear. Look at verse 22. 
Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. So loving others also leads to God answering our prayers, which is amazing. God's command is, they tell us in these verses, believe in Jesus and love one another. That's the heart of the gospel right there. Faith and love. The fruitful Christian life is a life of the right belief and the right conduct. When we obey this command from God, it means we're submitting, we're surrendering to what God's will it is in our life. So our prayers become bolder, become stronger, and they begin to really be aligned up with God's will and plans. And he loves to hear those kind of prayers. He answers those kind of prayers. You know, we have a wonderful woman. She's on staff in the children's department. And uh, she came and shared her testimony once. Her name's Jessica at a women's salad luncheon. And she had lived a life apart from God. And then when she was in the Navy, she came to know who God was in a strong way and just separated from all the canes she was surrounded with. She graduated. She had nowhere to go. She didn't have family to go to. She didn't have friends. She didn't have a job. She had God. And so she just began to pray, Lord, I don't know where to live. I don't know what to do. I'm just going to get in my car and ask you to show me where to go. She left Florida, and she drove for three days in the rain. Drove, drove, drove. Sometimes the rain would stop, and then she'd go spend the night, and she'd get back in her car. She made her way to Austin and decided she didn't want to live there. So she said, I'm going to go north. <laughs> so she drove north a few miles, and all of a sudden, the rain stopped, the sun came out, and she saw a rainbow. And she thought, Lord, maybe this is where you want me to live. She got out of her car at an apartment complex, got an apartment, the next day went to um, the, when you want to get a job, what's that called? Anyway, she went to find out how to get a job. And they told her about a certain business. She took their address, went, knocked on the door, opened the door to her new job and a new life of two Christian people she didn't know waiting for her to disciple her and become what she calls now her spiritual godparents. They totally are involved in her life even to this day. Three days of driving, praying that God was more than happy to answer. You know, I was thinking about Christ's chapel, and I thought it is, of course, Christ and his word that's built this church to be what it is, but you know what it also is? Your prayers, the prayers of the saints in this church. It's the staff prayers. It's the elders' prayers. It's the leadership prayers. All these prayers God has heard and been answering. It's a wonderful thing, and you know why? Because we work at loving each other in this church. We work at unity together. And so God says, bring on the prayers. I want to bless this place. 
Love also rewards us with the abiding presence of God. Look at verse 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he's given us. Okay, so there are those who will never experience the indwelling of God because they've rejected his son. On the other hand, all who believe in Jesus are sealed with the Spirit at the moment of salvation. But even then, Paul told the Thessalonians, you can be doing things in your life that can grieve that Spirit, that can quench that Spirit when you're unrepentant, when you're disobedient. But when we have this divine kind of love for the church, for God's people, it is a manifestation of the truth that God is living in us. It's a manifestation of the presence of God. It brings us again the assurance that God lives within us. He wants to walk closely with a believer who walks on his path of love. We have his heart and he has ours. What a great way to do life with God at our side. You know, Jesus said, I'm the vine. You're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. When we love one another, we reap all these fruits of an abundant spiritual life. Assurance of our position with God. Confidence with God. Answered prayer and the living God working through us with his spirit. So when it comes to living out our faith... What's love got to do with it? Now you can feel everything. Everything's the answer at the top of your outline. Love's got everything to do with it. Let me pray. Lord, you are good. We thank you for your love. It is our life. May we share that with those around us in your power. May you continue to bless us that we can glorify you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.